I had a half a shaved head, I'm covered in tattoos and I curse like a sailor. I was like, this is what a part of pageant do you see here? Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, like it's advocacy based. You're just going to be talking and educating. Like, I think this would be really good for you. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled and why they're proud to be themselves. So, Ryan, welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you so much for giving up your time and coming on today. I super appreciate it. And um, I'm really looking forward to this chat because I think I'm going to learn a lot, which is what I actually say for every podcast. But I think I genuinely will learn something today. So the first question that I like to ask every single guest is how do you refer to your disability? Oh, many different ways. Um, So I, (laughs) my disability is called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, um, which is a genetic connective tissue disorder, um, which basically means all of the collagen that my body makes is too stretchy. Um, And so I often refer to my disability um, as creating this Gumby meat cage um, (laughs) or... So uh, that's my favorite way to refer to how my disability affects me. Um, But otherwise, uh, EDS, but I do call it my disability, which I feel like is something that a lot of people don't like to call things. (laughs) Do you know what? It's super interesting that you say that because I was speaking to someone else who is in America and what she said was that for, for her, and it might not be the same for you, is that actually... Saying that you're disabled in America is almost like a huge act of rebellion because it's almost like a massive F you to the system because nobody wants to say that they're disabled and that like an admission of disability is almost like, it's almost like you're shitting on yourself when actually like you're not. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Um, For years, I refused to refer to my diagnosis as a disability. I think I would always, I would always say I, genetic disorder or something else because I was diagnosed when I was 16. So at that age, I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what verbiage I wanted to use, but I knew disability did not have a good, lot of good things attached to it. I knew no one else who was out and proud proclaiming the term disabled. So I definitely knew that I didn't think that was it for me until many years later. Yeah. And I like it, that is, it's amazing, isn't it? Because with EDS particular, and I've spoken to a lot of people who do like have EDS, is that actually the diagnosis isn't straightforward. So like even getting to a diagnosis and then being able to be like, actually, this does now mean that I'm disabled is is massive. And as you said, you were yeah. 16. So that is like quite young for an EDS um, mm-hmm. like diagnosis. And what was that experience like for you at that age? Absolutely. Um, I honestly got very lucky. Uh, My little sister was getting tested for uh, Marfan syndrome, which is a related diagnosis. And I happened to be with her. And that doctor happened to know a lot about EDS and took one look at me and was like, can I put you in a gown? (laughs) Like, let me examine. And so for me at that time, I mean, yeah, I had a lot of injuries, but I was also a really athletic rough and tumble kid who was constantly doing things that I shouldn't be doing, even if I had been able-bodied. Yeah, and um, so I never. They told me I remember at that 
appointment, they told me my diagnosis and I'd never heard of it. And they said, um, you might be in a wheelchair by the time you're 20. And I remember like taking that sentence and putting it in the back of my head and using it as like my elevator speech. Anytime anyone would like ask me about a knee brace or something like that, I'd be like, ah, I was born with this genetic thing. Yeah, I might be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 20. Right now I'm a teenager and I, I'm a dancer. I could care less. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I had enough knowledge. There wasn't enough knowledge yeah. that many years ago to really know what my life could end up looking like or um, to even know that there was going to be any kind of a negative attachment to that diagnosis mm -hmm. further on in life because my doctors kind of said, "Hey, you have this, you'll be fine. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you were literally left like high and dry. Like, by the way, just going to slap a sticker on your file and that's it for you. Like, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, like, um, I think there might be two books written on it. G good luck. Maybe try Amazon, I believe is what I was told. I was like, okay, cool. So why? It, it was downplayed to the point where I was just like, ah, this is just one of those things that, you know, a lot of people have. You'll just be flexible. It won't affect anything else. It definitely does like, not like your whole body is made up of collagen or anything. It's, yeah. it's totally fun. That is on, like, honestly, and I think particularly around EDS, because it is so, like, it is quite unknown, like, in terms of how well it's been researched and, and the development behind the research, it, does, it doesn't really exist. And so people kind of do just slap a sticker and be like, oh, this could be you, but it also might not be you. So, like, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Exactly. Like it, I could go to every single one of my different specialists because at that age, the one thing I wanted to know, I remember wanting to know if I could have kids. I felt like that was, you yeah, know, yeah. A, a reasonable answer or a question for a 16 year old. No one could give me an answer for that. And I felt like that was the one thing if they were going to give me this diagnosis that they could tell me, you know, like, can I reproduce? They said the word genetic that, you know, red flags. And then with me being so flexible, Every single doctor I would go to, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. Or, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. You don't want to pass this on in the same breath that they told me, you know, this is a diagnosis that won't really affect me. So it was kind of just getting so many mixed signals from the medical industry and being the age that I was. I kind of was just like, eh, all right, moving on. That's part of my story. <laughs> Didn't think much of it until a few years later when I started losing my mobility. Yeah. And because you got your diagnosis at 16, which like, as I said, is, it is quite a young age to get an EDS um, diagnosis. And particularly around that age, because I think it's such a formative age in terms of like anybody's life, like disabled, non-disabled, it really doesn't matter. Like when you're 16, you're not the same person that you are when you're 26. How did that affect like your schooling and the career choices that you made thereafter? Um, I basically did everything I wasn't supposed to do without knowing I wasn't supposed to be doing it. <laughs> I got my diagnosis and they, because they treated it as a kind of just slapping the sticker on. I was a dancer at that point. I wanted to do that professionally. I wanted to dance in musical theater on Broadway. And so I was dancing 13 hours a week. I mean, wow. doing all these intensives in the summer. I mean, that was what I wanted to do. And I kept doing it. Said, you know what? This is this what we're going to go for. But yeah. at the same time, I kind of fell into the medical industry, into that world. I never, like, there was never a time growing up where I wanted to be a nurse at all until yeah. after my diagnosis. And I started ending up in the emergency room for more injuries, head injuries and things. And I kind of started looking around and seeing, you know, these ER nurses and seeing how 
strong and powerful they were. And I was this like really shy kid at that point in my life who didn't really want to raise her like getting called on in class was my worst nightmare. So <laughs> like the idea of these nurses running this trauma bay, I was like, what? I could never do that. My mom made the infamous now infamous quote of uh, telling me if I was going to be in the ER all the time, I might as well get paid to push the stretcher. She was joking. <laughs> I don't get wrong. Oh, well, I immediately signed up for a night class for uh, to become an EMT. Thought I would take the class and be like, haha, I did the thing. I'm done. Yeah. Fell in love with it. And so I'm kind of entering healthcare simultaneously, still dancing all the time. Continued with going to college because I'm a Capricorn. I'm a planner. I got to have a backup plan. So I was like, I'm still going to do this dance thing. As long as I can do it, but I'm going to be a little bit reasonable and like create a fallback. And the more I kind of created this fallback because I had to, the more I was like, wait a minute, I really love nursing. Now, did I enter a part of nursing that I should have for my diagnosis? No, I entered immediately into the emergency room and became a trauma nurse and did that for the first five years. But because I kind of made every decision incorrectly and because I had absolutely no guidance. That's exactly what led me into my career in healthcare and then now disability advocacy because it didn't exist for me. (laughs) Yeah. And I was wondering if you could actually talk a bit about that journey, how you got into disability advocacy, because I think because you are a registered nurse, like you must have such an interesting viewpoint in terms of you can see and understand the medical model of disability, probably more so than a lot of people. But equally, because you are a disabled person, you also understand the social model of disability, again, more so than those who use the medical model of disability. And I wonder what is that like for you in your disability advocacy and also like, you know, sometimes the conflicts that are between the two that might arise in your life. Absolutely. I I joke a lot. It's almost like I have two personalities and two worlds that I live in because, you know, a lot of times they do go hand in hand. And then other times I find myself doing things in my healthcare career or looking at a situation not as somebody with a disability and realize like, what what am I doing? (laughs) Hold on, let me backtrack. And that's kind of, I stumbled into disability advocacy. I'll be very honest. I um, was... It was right in the middle of kind of me learning what my life as a wheelchair user was going to be like around 2019 or so. I think I'd been using a wheelchair for a year and uh, somebody reached out to me about a advocacy pageant here um, in America. We have a Miss Wheelchair America pageant and I'd never done a pageant in my entire life. I had a half a shaved head. I'm covered in tattoos and I curse like a sailor. I was like, this is what a part of pageant do you see here? Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, like... it's advocacy based. You're just going to be talking and educating. Like, I think this would be really good for you because I was having trouble kind of because I'd been kind of just been told by healthcare my whole life that my disability and my diagnosis wasn't going to affect me, wasn't going to be a big deal my whole life. Suddenly it was a huge deal changing everything. I went through losing my dream job as an ER nurse. I went through a divorce that was directly linked to my disability all in the same time. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. And these people came forward with this pageant and said, you know, why don't you try this? I'm like, why not? Yeah, sure. And I won the thing. And I, the first time I ever spoke in public about disability or about my experience was that pageant. Um, and I remember I wrote down a whole speech and I was so prepared and I was shaking and then I'm like throwing the thing because I 
don't have the concentration to read or pre-write my speeches. And I never did it again. Yeah. <laughs> I've just gotten up there ever since. But I found that I had been advocating for my disability for years just without really thinking about it in healthcare as a nurse, um, as somebody who, you know, though I may not have been visibly disabled with the chair or all my mobility aids for the past five or six years, my entire life, I've always had to change the way I did things or do things a little differently from the people around me. And I'm constantly educating or explaining what it is because it was so rare. And I grew up in a hometown of 6,000 people. Nobody had heard of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. <laughs> so I, I really started creating this account because I knew I was going to lose my mobility. And I had a lot of friends and family in other parts of the world. And I didn't want them to be shocked when it happened, yeah. um, especially because I honestly downplayed my disability for most of my life as well. I mean, that elevator speech... I said over and over, oh, I'll be in a wheelchair by the time I'm 20, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. And so getting to this point and realizing that um, all of these things that I've done my whole life kind of just lended them well to advocacy and telling my stories and using my knowledge of both the healthcare world and being a patient and kind of merging them and helping my patients that way. And I think that must be so invaluable for your patients because... There's like a, there's another layer to what you can give them. It's not just like, here's your pills and take them. And it's like, I kind of get this. It's a lived experience. And like, you might find this helps or you might find that helps. And like, when I think back to all the medical professionals that have been involved in my life, like not one of them could tell me what my experience would be like, not one of them. And like, you know, and I, I, I kind of look back and I'm like, oh, I kind of wish that I'd had someone who was a medical professional who also identified as disabled because they, they maybe would have been like, actually like you can do this or why don't you try this? Because that, that was never given. So I think how lucky are your patients that they get to experience that from you because so many people want it and you're able to provide it. Yeah. And I mean, I started kind of putting myself in these kind of situations because I think back to how much I would have benefited to have somebody in my life growing up that was, you know, out and disabled and talking about what that life was like, even if they hadn't had a disability like mine, just, you know, the only access to disability education that I had growing up was whatever I could get through my healthcare professionals or later in life, whatever I could Google, which we know is rarely actually meant for <laughs> disabled people by disabled people. Yeah. <laughs> Often not. Um, and so just how empowering it is to just see somebody else with a disability out and about and living their lives and not just doing what society seems to think is, you know, hiding us away in a corner and that we don't yeah. work. And yeah. And so just kind of remembering what I needed and trying to remember and make content based on that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's so important because I think back to like, younger version of me and I've always been like very very happily disabled like I've never really like quibbled it or argued it because my arm is not growing back like I'm not going to find it down the back of a sofa it doesn't <laughs> exist so like you either accept it and if you don't accept it then like you're denying a part of yourself which I think 
must be such a difficult place to be. And like being able to now like look on Instagram or watch YouTube videos or like any part of social media that you can see someone else who's disabled, who is like you, or like, as you said, like disabled full stop and like living a happy life. And it's not like, well done you for getting up in the morning. Like, well done you for going to Sainsbury's (laughs) and picking up your sandwich. You are my hero. Or on the flip side, like, I'm so sad to be disabled. Okay. Like this, this life is not worth living if I don't have two hands and two legs and, and a fully working organ system. Uh-huh. Like that isn't the reality of life. It's, it's like, it's not just, there is so much joy and disability. And like to be able to now see that yeah. from a time where that was definitely not the case is kind of incredible. Absolutely. I love this. Cause you're yeah. just like nodding I mean, your head. My like, life, absolutely. I won't even lie. I kind of changed. Yes, I'm like so excited. I'm like, yes, yes, this is my life. <laughs> I totally understand because I, um, I never had met anyone um, with a disability growing up and every or anything. And um, I, I swiped right on my best friend on Tinder, and he happens to be in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. This part of the story comes in. I had never met somebody in a chair. I'd never met somebody with spinal cord injury at this point in my life. I was, you know. Up there. Just I, other than my patients, I was a nurse at the time. And I remember I'd never seen adaptive sports. He played wheelchair basketball. And I was just like, wait a minute. Like at that point, I was trying to transition to using a cane and I'm like complaining and I'm like realizing that there was this entire community that I knew at that point nothing about. Mm-hmm. There were all of these opportunities for the disabled community um, that I knew absolutely nothing about. It's just like my eyes were opened meeting this person. And I was just like, oh this would have been way more obvious that I could be both happy and disabled had I had someone else to show me that. <laughs> exactly that. Like, oh, if I just had like someone to watch or someone to look at and be like, you can do it too. <laughs> I would love to talk to you about your series, Dildos and Disabilities. Yes, exactly. Because the name itself makes me die because it's so funny and it's like it sums everything up really well and like I'm gonna let you wax lyrical about it because I think it's great and like it's your kid so you crack on Thank you. Yes, it is my baby. Yes. Um, so Dildos and Dislocations was born um several years ago because I have always been someone who is very open um with my sexuality, as whereas just like I grew up in a household full of hippies where sex was just a open conversation. It was never something that I felt like I needed to be scared to ask my parents questions about. It was always something that we were all very open about. Um I was taught anatomical terms for genitalia at a really young age. There was a whole thing when I was in kindergarten, I fell on the slide and I hit my pubic bone. The teacher asked me what hurt. And I said, Oh my God, I hurt my vagina. And I got in trouble. <laughs> she called my mom and my mom's like, why are you calling me for her saying the word vagina? Yeah. And then she hangs the phone up. Like it's a whole thing. <laughs> so my mother and my father are very open. And um, when I was kind of deciding what I was going to do, um, 
going to college, I wanted to go initially in a nursing school right out of high school, but my college's nursing program, the waitlist was too long and I changed my mind with my major too many times. I ended up setting, settling on um, health sciences with a concentration in human sexuality. I said, this is what interests me. You know, I like being able to be that person that my friends come to, to just ask their most candid, not very sexy questions about sex. I love that because it doesn't bother me a bit. And I want people to feel as comfortable talking about sex as I do. And I always have. Um, And so when my disability began to also affect my sex life, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right. Um, We're turning to social media. There's got to be something out there. There's, there's got to be something. Um, I found one podcast and I think like one book and that was it. That was it. That was the end of the list. And so then I, I went on that podcast and I talked and then that, that was about it. And I was like, all right, um, I'm apparently just going to start making my own stuff. Like this is yeah. <laughs> like, I had learned some things along the way and I wanted to share the little accommodations that I had made with my own sex life with other disabled people out there. Cause there's, I couldn't find anyone just candidly talking about sex specifically for our community. Yeah. So I said, well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> It's so interesting because I literally yesterday was having a conversation with someone who is a disability sex educator and like so many things that were said in terms of accessibility blew my mind. And we were talking about toys and what he was saying is it's not always like the buttons that are the issue. It might be the packaging. It might be the colors. It might be the textures. And all of this stuff is not something that you would naturally think about as someone who doesn't necessarily have those issues. Right. And as soon as he started talking about it and we were talking about these things, like what about the packaging? How do you get in if you can't use both your wrists or your fingers aren't that dexterous? Like, what do you do? And honestly, like it blew my mind which makes me feel really bad as a disabled person. Cause I'm more like fly the flag, like do what you got to do to make yourself feel good. But actually there are so many like barriers to entry when it comes to that world. And actually disability and sex is the last taboo because mm-hmm. how often is it that you see disability and sex and it equals fetish rather than anything else? Because that's exactly where people's exactly. mind goes to immediately. <laughs> Yeah, because it is honestly somehow either for them to conceptualize like disability and sex as this strange taboo kink thing than just disabled people having normal boring sex because they like it yeah because <laughs> we're all virgins and um we all pray to mary magdalene is that no that's the one that was jesus's person the virgin mary that's who i meant she's the one she's our idol because she did nothing <laughs> Yes, yes. (laughs) So I like to think that through any form of hardship or dark period in anyone's life, if they can reflect upon that moment and pull out a positive attribute about themselves, then they've learned something or, you know, it might have been a bit worth it. And I was wondering through any hardship in your life, have you been able to pull out a positive attribute that actually you're really proud of within yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think my 
The thing I'm I'm most proud of in my disability journey and specifically lately revolving around my employment journey Mm -hmm. as far as health, I was so, 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 so set on returning to the bedside and working as a nurse in a wheelchair at as a bedside nurse because I mean, that is so cool to me. I love that concept. Seeing more nurses at the bedside, this is amazing. And I did that. I worked as um, a postpartum nurse um, and nursery nurse for a year from my chair. And I absolutely loved my job. And I moved to California and I said, okay, well, now that I'm here, I need to kind of decide if I'm going to go back to bedside or if I'm going to do something else while I'm here. And I had worked so hard to get back to bedside. that, But I had to kind of also think about the fact that Yes, I'm a wheelchair user, but I also have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a chronic illness that affects every single aspect of my body. And bedside nursing is hard. (laughs) It is the hardest, most physically taxing job I've ever had in my life. And postpartum is one of the easier, lesser taxing ones. And it's still, I mean, I was sleeping 13, 14 hours a day. I was a zombie all my days off. And yeah, I was this great, inspiring nurse on wheels. And I was great for my patients, but I was absolutely useless. I couldn't make contact uh, content anymore. I was useless to my partner. I mean, I was a zombie. Yeah. And so I had to take a step back and I had to say, you know, what is the part of nursing that I am the most excited about? And like, why am I doing this? Am I putting myself and my body through this because it's bringing me attention and I love that for the disability community? Or am I bringing doing this because it's making me happy. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love bedside, I had to take a step back. And so I did something completely unrelated and did school nursing for the last six months, which I loved, but it's yeah. just, they don't pay school nurses very much money at all. <laughs> um, but I'm going to just this week, I got to return to hospital nursing again, but in a way that's more feasible for me physically. Um, I'm a case manager, which is a job I've done before. I did it as my job where I had I had to when I was going in my wheelchair the first time. They, I, it was like the only job in the hospital they could think of when I was oh. trying to figure out what to do. And I said, I'll never do this again. I'll never leave bedside. But in this job, I basically work as a social worker. I get to wheel into every single one of my patients' rooms and sit down and have a conversation with them, um, explain all of their testing, what's going on, what's happening to them while they're here in the hospital, talk to them about how they live at home, get them back there if they need to go to a nursing home, if they need a wheelchair, if they need other mobility aids. I literally get to do all of those things for my patients. And written down on paper and, you know, telling my story, it's not nearly as glamorous and as amazing as a bedside nurse during a pandemic. But I had to, you know, do what was best for my body and what's going to let me be both the best nurse and also the best advocate and also the best human yeah. <laughs> I can be. I wanted, you know, to be here for my partner again. Yeah. So yeah, getting to kind of all of this to say, going through this really made me a, not, I have to stop putting my disability into a bag behind me and only pulling it out when it's useful to me. Um, I This kind of has over the years made me acknowledge and face the fact that this is the body that I was given. And if I want to continue doing what I'm doing, I'm going to have to do things a little differently. And staying at bedside just wasn't in the cards, at least for right now. <laughs> What I love about what you've just said is that, and I think I also suffer from this, is that putting rest 
is on the back burner for me. Like I'm someone who will go hell for leather until it's not good for me. And I'm like, why did I need to sleep for like three days on the trot? Like, what did I do wrong? Like, is it because I'm training too hard or is it because I'm pushing myself too much? And I do think that, you know, sometimes being a really driven person and wanting to help other people can have its downside. And that is that you will push yourself to make sure other people around you are like enjoying themselves, having a good time. Or, you know, in your case, making sure that they're okay in terms of like your job. And like, you just put yourself on the back burner because you're like, Mm -hmm. I want everybody else to be on good form. And like, I've got so many things that I want to do and I want to pursue that rest just doesn't really come into it. But actually what you just said is that you need to learn to prioritize rest. And I think I'm also in that boat too. (laughs) Yes. Something that takes years to accomplish, I swear, especially as somebody that's super driven and wants to accomplish everything. You're like, "Ah, no, I only need three hours of sleep a night. It's fine. Oh my God. I know. I'm like, oh, I can sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. Oh God. The amount of times I've said that. Yeah, I look back, I worked a full-time night shift as a CNA while I was going to to nursing school full-time during the day. And I'm just like, I've done this my whole life. And it's finally, I got to like my late 20s and my body was like, no more. (laughs) No. (laughs) And it was like, do you want to be hospitalized or do you want to continue living your life? And I was like, all right, you know what? That's uh, mm that. Nope, (laughs) we're not doing that. Yeah. So I only recently learned that because I have one like less limb in my body, I actually scientifically get 33% more tired than like average Joe blogs. And I did not know this. Like I'm closer to 30 than I am 25. And I was blown away. Like it took me that long to find that out. And I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Like no wonder I like when I sleep, I sleep hard. Like I'm like, you know, I'm like not shifting for nobody. And like, no wonder, but nobody told me that. And nobody was like, oh, like FYI, you might find that like doing really mundane tasks actually make you a bit more tired. And it's not because you're lazy and it's not because you're not like able to do them. It's just because you get a bit more tired because you don't have that extra limb. Nobody told me that. Okay. Nope. It wasn't until um, only a few years ago for me that I, someone explained to me, that with EDS, I'm exhausted all the time because my muscles and my joints are constantly contracting to try to hold everything. And so everything's kind of spasming all the time. And I'm like, huh, been this way my whole life. Had no idea. No, uh-uh. registered nurse teach this stuff all the time. No idea. It's yep, always learning about these bodies we live in. <laughs> and also that's what I kind of love about being disabled, right? Is that you, you're constantly learning about yourself. Is that like what might work for you one week? It definitely won't in the next. Like, nope. Nope. You're going to find a whole new way to do everything week to week. Yep. Mm-hmm. Love it. <laughs> but we're very good at thinking outside of the box. Oh my gosh. Like I think I'm the most creative thinker I know. I sit there and I'm like in meetings and I'm like, oh, I can see this problem way before all of you guys can. And I'm going to let you know this is why. And everyone's like, pardon? I'm like, no, 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 let's think about this logically. And they're like, Brooke, like, where, where did that come from? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how, how, how can you see that? And I'm like, I, I think it's a disabled thing. Yep, absolutely. It's why I get so excited every time I hear anyone else that's disabled that wants to go into healthcare, because that is like nurse brain. That is how you have to think all the time. So I'm always just like, yep, you're going to be good. You're going to know how to do this already. Come on. <laughs> come on in the doors are welcoming <laughs> yeah something like that it's fine <laughs> we're getting there 
I was wondering, because you're in America and your healthcare system is very different to the healthcare yeah. system that we have in the UK, in terms of like insurance and all of that kind of stuff, how does that work for you, particularly with EDS in the US? Because from what I know of my very short time living in the US is that insurance is really effing difficult and yep. also really expensive. And for someone who has a chronic condition and like you are disabled, that's never going to change. What is that like? So for me, um, the interesting thing about being disabled in America is um, America as a whole doesn't really think you're disabled until you can't work anymore. That is the only time <laughs> that they will say, oh, OK. Um, and I luckily have never gotten to that point. So when it got to the point where my body was getting in the way of my job and I was just like, I don't know what am I supposed to do? Um there were very few people to help me through tra that transition. Um, thank God for social media, because that was another piece of the puzzle. I'm like, I feel like there should be more guidance here when you suddenly your health is getting in the way of your job, but you need your job in order to have health care because our benefits are tied to our employment. Also, an interesting thing is as a registered nurse, um, specifically one who works in a health like hospital health system, my insurance is almost always through my health system. So if my doctors happen to be at a different hospital or something like that, I'm going to have to pay more money. So I'm like always doing this math, like trying to get this, my most recent job and going back into a, a uh, hospital healthcare system. I did this very purposefully because I knew, okay, I already have my specialist through this specific hospital health system. Yeah. So if I get a job there, then I won't lose all my coverage and I will still get to work there. Then it also will be easier to convince them to let me leave during the day for appointments because they are right there into the hospital. Um, so to your answer your question, I have to think about at least 27 different variables every time I change my employment because I need it to live <laughs> wow yeah like that must be such a conflict like a real conflicting part of being disabled in America because on the one hand like as you said your insurance and your coverage comes through your work but what if you get to the point where actually work is no longer working for you and actually it's making you and I, and I hate to say like more disabled, but like yes. what more disabled because actually, you know, you're pushing yourself to the brink. And, and yes. as we've already discussed, like we both have a problem with rest and, and that whole situation must just not be con like conducive for anyone. And I'm just, this is when like my brain like wanders and I'm like, how did anybody at any point in time think that this was ever going to be like good for a society that was Thank meant you. to work? I ask this all the time, all the time, especially because... I've gotten lucky as a nurse. I I haven't had to really think much about it because I've always yeah. in my past always worked in hospitals. So it was like, all right, it's fine. I I have insurance. We're good. Um, then I remember um, the day before I started a brand new job, I was still working in the ER. I dislocated my shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, I believe I was lifting weights, doing something I probably shouldn't have been doing, but I needed surgery um, and had to go. I, I mean, I showed up for work the next day. I just had my arm in a sling. I said, I can nurse with one arm. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can do it. Absolutely. Really and I did, did it for months. But it, most of the time um, in America, your 
insurance is employed is tied to your employment, but your benefits, some of them may not kick in for a year. And so for in order for me at that time in life to take time off to have the surgery, I had to keep working for a year <laughs> because that's how long it took to get leave benefits at that hospital. Yeah. Luckily, did not run into that at my newest job, but that was something that I knew in the future to look out for in case something should happen. How much sense does that make? I'm always going to be disabled. Why on earth would my leave benefits not kick in for a year? What am I supposed to just not be disabled for a year? I don't. <laughs> how does that work? You can't press pause on something that's ever changing and evolving, right? Exactly. And that's kind of why in my current career choice and with case management in the hospital, a big thing that we do is work with insurance companies. And so I am very excited to get to learn a bit more so I can hopefully better explain this transition because I'm hoping there's puzzle pieces that I was just missing during the time because I have never been on government assistance. But I now my partner has been on government assistance. So we've like done the whole compare and contrast thing. And it's yeah, no, I didn't miss any steps. There just aren't any. <laughs> yeah. And, and for you being a wheelchair user, like I know that in the UK, if you become a wheelchair user, like you kind of go through the NHS and then it all kind of works that way. And then like you can kind of pay like a top up and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What is that process like in the US? Because are you paying for your wheelchair or is it like, or is it given? And like given sounds like such a wrong word to use, but it's the only one that I can think of that fits this like conversation. So um, in, it depends on your disability and the way that you acquire your need for a wheelchair. For somebody with a chronic illness, for example, um, it tends to be a longer, more drawn out process because you are seen as ambulatory. Um, For me personally, what happened, um, I actually went in to my GP because I was falling at work. My hips were dislocating, didn't know that. Um, And I went in for forearm crutches, but my legs had gotten so unstable. My physical therapist was like, "Mm, I think we need to also do the wheelchair route. Like, let's just stay safe here. I was like, okay. Um, I then had to kind of my physical therapist and I at that time had to convince my doctor that I did need a wheelchair because they were so focused on the muscle atrophy aspect of wheelchair use and that I could lose this in my in my legs and things they weren't focusing on the fact that I was falling over 16 times a day and I'd already had one head bleed so like where were we going with this <laughs> so In that, once I convinced my physician that this was something that was a dire necessity, um, he wrote the prescription and we basically your physical therapist write all these letters um, convincing your insurance company that this is something that you do require. Um, And usually if that letter is written really well by a therapist who actually really knows what they're doing, um, you can get a big part of your insur- of your chair covered. Now that depends on your insurance, um, but you're usually going to pay at least two to three grand out of pocket, even if your insurance covers your entire wheelchair. Um, and then another part of that, which I find very interesting, is unless you live somewhere that is close to um, a therapist that does wheelchair fittings or has like um, wheelchair skills days, they kind of just bring you your chair to your house and say, here you go. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, like now, again, at Christmas, but without the instructions. Mm-hmm. It was like this big piece of basically machinery. And I'm like, all right, well, we're just going to we're just going to get in this and go. Turns out there are a lot of skills uh, that need to be used. Um, six years, years later, I've, I've learned this. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was also going through all of this in a very, very rural part of the world. And so now living in a much bigger city, it's interesting to see. It's not always like that. But because, again, because this is what I had run into over and over again, this was the second that I started being like, all right, well, um, I'm thinking I'm going to make some wheelchair skills videos because these things that I they literally gave me a wheelchair and said, here, go. And so I got my first um, pressure wound not that long ago because nobody told me that I, I I said, hey, I can feel my butt. I can tell if I've been sitting too long. No, you can't. You, you know, lose sensation. And I had no idea. And so I made a video and I had people who were in their 30s, 40s, spinal cord injuries who had been in their chairs for years commenting and saying they also had no idea that they needed to do pressure relief exercises. And so it's just this world that we have able-bodied people who don't know enough, educating disabled people who need it to be their entire lives. And this is any kind of mobility aid or any kind of accommodation. It's very similar. Interestingly, you did, you like, you are a wheelchair user now, but you weren't always. So no. What was that transition period like for you? Did you, and I'm, I'm just interested because I always wonder what would it be like if you went from walking, but it causing so much like problems, like, as you said, you're falling 16 times a day, which actually like when you think about like quality of life, it, it can't yeah. be like ideal when you're constantly thinking like, Oh, like, can I stand here in case I'm going to hit my head? What was that like, that transition period like for you? Was it liberating? Because I know a lot of people who say that actually, like deciding to use a mobility aid was almost like a weight off their shoulders because then it was like, oh, they can explore the world again. But what was it yes. like? Oh my God. I just remember wishing that I had done it years ago. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I just kept thinking about how many, um, like going to the zoo or going to an amusement park that either my spouse would have had to like push me in one of the like big clunky ones you rent. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for many years. Um, but in those moments where you just do like a rental wheelchair or something like that, all the time I was kind of getting just like left because there was no way to get that big clunky thing upstairs. It didn't fit in many lifts. It's not a fitted wheelchair. And I couldn't push it myself. Um, I was getting exhausted trying to do it. Um, There was just no way. And for me to finally get my first wheelchair and get to go grocery shopping by myself for the first time in years, I could not remember the last time I'd had the stamina to do that. Just the um, the stamina preservation that my wheelchair gave me back. Um, I thought that I was going to have to leave hospital nursing. I thought that I was going to have to um, quit all of my sports or thing. Or um, I wasn't even doing sports at the time I was dancing. Um, I thought I was going to have to stop doing everything because I just could not get over the constant injuries, the overwhelming feeling of I'm always going to fall and never feeling safe in my own body. I was constantly just, okay, where's the chair? Where's the chair? Okay. I need to sit down. I need <laughs> so suddenly when I have my own chair, it's just like, oh, I don't have to 
think about that anymore. I can just yeah. be present in this space. And I just, it had been so long that I hadn't had that constant, okay, I need to be able to get to a place. I need to have lots of water. I need to have all my things with me. I need to have somebody to carry my stuff. Like I have my chair. It's always packed with everything I need. It has my bag that has my meds. Like I'm so much more independent. I was able to live by myself for the first time in my entire life because of my chair and it would have never happened. And so there have been obviously been times where I've had a lot of mental struggles with being a wheelchair user and the issues that do come with that. But the amount of times that are just like more celebratory and how much it's given me back in my life, way outnumber <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and I love that because I think so many people are so afraid of becoming a wheelchair user, like, and, and kind of understandably because the way that society portrays it in media and like, you know, when you think about films or TV, like it's never, it's never necessarily highlighted as like a positive and it's never necessarily highlighted as actually, this is fucking liberation. Like this is not, you're not trapped. It's fucking liberating. Like you're now able to, to live your best life. We don't see that like representation no. in like mainstream media. Exactly. So I think it's so important to like get that message out there because like who knows is going to listen to this podcast? Like maybe like, you know, younger version of you who is really nervous about going into a wheelchair and then suddenly realizes actually like it's the best thing ever. Yes. They can make that decision. And I think, oh, like, how amazing is that? Exactly. So if you are out there and you are listening to this and you have already been having the thoughts of, you know, maybe it's time for mobility aid, but you're kind of on the fence. If you are having those thoughts, it is already, it's time. It's been time. <laughs> Go ahead. Try it out, whether it's a cane from the CVS, your drugstore, a Goodwill wheelchair, see how you feel. It might absolutely change your life. And it doesn't have to be something that big. I remember my first um, accommodation that changed my life was um, an upright rocking knife because I have such wrist pain with <laughs> regular knives. It was just an upright knife that was made for like my grandmother and her arthritis. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I can cut forever. <laughs> I think I was 12. <laughs> like <laughs> Accommodation can blow your mind, but you have to try it to know how it can change your life. Yeah, exactly. I like to ask everybody, and it's kind of like a twofold question. And actually, I really need to figure out how to word it better because every time I do, it kind of <laughs> comes out a bit of a mess. But most people get what I'm saying. But do you have a piece of advice for a younger version of yourself, but also a piece of advice for a younger person with the same disability as you? Now, they don't have to be the same piece of advice. They can be two separate pieces of advice. Okay. I think for the person with the same disability as me, um, I, I think it's, it's a really, it's a good time to have EDS right now, but at the same time, we are suddenly <laughs> like inundated by information about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is great, mm -hmm. but a lot of it is also worst case scenario. <laughs> um, I have seen more scary. This is how your life could end up if you don't take care of yourself. You're, every single person with EDS is going to end up wheelchair ugh, bound. I hate that word. Wheelchair bound with a feeding tube. You're going to not be able to work. You're going to be on TP. That's just not 
the reality. Yeah. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a giant, massive spectrum of a disability. It is, it affects every single person a little bit differently. And no matter where you are in your EDS journey, it is a beautiful life with this disability. You get to know a little earlier than most what it feels like to maybe not trust your body and maybe not trust that you can wake up every morning. And because of that, you get to not take things for granted the way that most people you know, as a 17 year old, I was looking for the little things in life and constantly doing the little things that I knew would bring me joy because I didn't know when the next injury would come or when the next time I'd be having surgery or stuck in a bed for two months, you know, so I needed to find the joy in the things that I could do now, Um, not take things for granted, not wait until a little later in my life when I think I'm going to be ready, do it now because there might not be a later, you just never know. And that sounds like a scary way to live but at the same time it's just really really beautiful and i don't know it was hard for me growing up but the older i get the more thankful i am for that kind of outlook and it helps me to be a better person a better advocate and also a better nurse for sure and i think my advice for somebody who's listening with a disability that's not necessarily the same as my own um I like to say that there are times I know that you know, and you're used to it. Every time we go out in public, people are looking, right? And they're waiting for us to, to, I don't know, do a trick. Let them stare. The next time that you feel them staring, look up and smile real big. You know what scares able-bodied people more than anything? Disabled joy. They don't know what to do with it. People doing wheelies in the parking lot, having fun, freaks them out. It's great. They need to see more. So even if they're staring, even if there's a million people circling around you waiting for you to do something fun, remember that this is the only life that we are giving. This is the only body that we are given. And we have just as much right to enjoy it and enjoy our lives as everyone else on this planet. (laughs) I love that so much. That has actually made my heart be like, oh, yes. Like, and you're actually so, so <laughs> spot on when you say that there's nothing that's <laughs> I'm so glad. Like, like there is, you're, you're so, like, you're so right when you say there's nothing more that scares like the non-disabled as disabled joy. <laughs> like it's, it's so true. Cause you know, like disabled person having a good time. <gasps> is that possible? I'm like, yeah, it's possible Sharon, fuck off. <laughs> And I love that that's your, like, you know, your. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just, oh, like, it makes my heart so warm. Yes. And like, absolutely. Because it's just, there's not enough of it out there. <laughs> so I love this question. As disabled people, we constantly <laughs> get asked weird and wonderful questions on, like, on a daily basis. And I was just wondering, what are some of the weirdest questions that you have been asked in regards to your disability? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, I think it cut out. I didn't get to hear the question. <laughs> oh, can you hear me now? Can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, amazing. So what are some of the weirdest yeah, questions you. that you have been asked in regards to your disability? <laughs> Yes. Okay. My favorite 
recurring one as a hospital nurse that I didn't, it catches me off guard, mainly for how many times I would get asked this. And I'm prepared because this was all when I was a case manager. So as a case manager, you're always the nurse that um, is getting the patient discharged. You're a discharge planner. So you're helping them get their ambulance and everything. And a lot of times the nurses know, I mean, the, the patients know that. So they know to look out for their case manager because that means they're going home. So I'll go in and I'll introduce myself and I'm in my wheelchair. Now my my wheelchair um, is covered in rainbows. It's very brightly colored. It has lots of stickers. It's very much personalized. And I will wheel into the room and I swear, I've gotten this like 10 times and it'll be like, oh, is it my turn to go downstairs? Why are you sitting in my wheelchair? That's strange. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I'm not. Between that and them asking me for rides in my chair, in my workplace. <laughs> this is a grown adult. I'm like, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that was not expected, the amount of times that they thought that I was in their chair or would actually get in a fight with me thinking that I was stealing their wheelchair. <laughs> America know. is wild. Like, it's a whole thing, man. <laughs> in what universe would I give you a ride in my lap? Okay, sure. You know what? I worked in the ER. I've heard it all. Sure. <laughs> oh I yeah. think that's hilarious it, like just I can just imagine like a big burly guy being like is that my wheelchair and, it, and why are you sat in it I'm like, every time I'm just like what no okay um we're not gonna read the room at all no mm. yes sir let me get you this rainbow covered chair I did it just for you oh that's hilarious yeah I've only got one final question for you and that is Ryan, can you say that you're disabled and proud? Ah, uh, Brooke, my darling, I can absolutely say that I am disabled and very proud. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I think it's the most brilliant thing to be able to say that you're proud to be disabled because for so long, society put us in a corner and basically told us that we didn't really exist or that like actually like our lives were second to everybody else's so isn't it now not the most magical thing to be like do you know what i'm actually bloody proud of being disabled and like my life is exactly. fab just because i've got a disability doesn't mean that i'm any less than any of you and i i love it because now especially that i've moved to california where it's a bit warmer and there's a bit more to do um my partner and i are both in wheelchairs and so our favorite thing is to show up to any and every and as many community events as humanly possible because nobody expects especially a couple of wheelchair users to be out and about together and for both of us to keep showing up even if it might not be accessible at all i'm like nope still gonna be here still here hello you're gonna change things sooner or later because i'm just gonna keep coming <laughs> Oh, I love that so much. Honestly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and giving up your time and like to having this chat with me because I've, I've loved it and it's been so fab. So thank you so, so much for being here. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disabled and Proud. If you've enjoyed the show, then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us to reach more and more people each week. Plus, if you've got a particular highlight, then I'd absolutely love to hear it. Tag me on your Insta stories at Disabled and Proud Podcast.